All right. All right. All right. Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. I'm officially back from paternity leave, and uh, my new son Owen is, is right over here. Uh, please do not touch. He's still fragile. You can look, but don't touch. You break it, you buy it. And so uh, we're very thankful, thankful for all the help we've had over the last four weeks from Pastor Ryan and Ben Thompson and Dave Jin, who preached last week. Uh, it's been a real blessing just to get to step into family of fourness. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, this week marks the last sermon in our series we've called Witness in the book of Acts. And so we'll be in Acts chapter 28. If you've got, hey, thanks, Ryan. Wow. Servant leadership right there. Thank you. Um, if you've got a Bible, grab it and open to chapter 28, the last chapter in Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of your rows. Uh, feel free as well uh, to Google Acts 28, although I do love the physicality of holding an actual Bible. So there's plenty around you. You can find one. If you need to stand up and walk to go get it, that's fine too. Uh, Acts chapter 28. This is our 21st week looking at the question, how to be a witness for Christ. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And we've said when you witness something happen that's truly great, when you witness it, or you witness something truly tragic, it changes you. It changes how you live, it changes what you talk about, and it changes what you value. Think about this uh, just this week with number 41 passing away, George H.W. Bush, uh, watching just some of uh, the recaps of his life. And I think he was a great man. I think he was a humble man when you, when you think about and, and listen to those talk about him. Died at the age of 94. Um, and one of the things they talk about that I didn't even know about was that he was a World War II veteran, that he was the youngest enlisted fighter pilot, and that his plane was actually shot down. And this impacted him dramatically. He witnessed World War II. He witnessed friends, close brothers in the service die. He witnessed the effects of evil. And it led, it changed him, and led him to a life of service. Uh, that struck me because uh, my wife, Allie, her grandfather, whose name is Howard, and that's the middle name of our first son, Grayson, Grayson Howard, uh, he was a bombardier in World War II as well. And I remember I lived in his house in Colorado when I was going to seminary, and I would remember talking to him, and he was greatly impacted and changed by what he witnessed during World War II. So when we witness things, truly great things or truly tragic things, it changes us. And we see this in the disciples of Jesus. They witnessed both the most tragic moment in human history, that is the death of God in the flesh, God the Son, Jesus Christ. They witnessed the most tragic moment in history, and they witnessed the greatest moment in history, and that is seeing Jesus Christ after death, risen from the grave, and alive. And so they have witnessed an incredible thing and it's profoundly changed them so much so that they became his first witnesses in the world and we've said this once you witness something then you become a witness and it's your job to go testify to what you have witnessed why you have changed and so these disciples they witnessed the tragic death of Jesus and the grand resurrection of Jesus and they stood for him against all opposition and rulers and powerful tribunals and angry mobs for his name, for his sake, for his glory in the world and that's what we've been studying over these last 21 weeks as we've looked at 30 years of witnessing to the risen Jesus Christ and all of them eventually would give their lives in defense of the claim that they had wit witnessed Jesus Christ risen from the grave. And, and so it's, it's something of a celebration that we've gotten to the end of this book. Uh, it's going to be sad to say goodbye to the book of Acts because I, I believe this theme of witness is so important and it will continue to be a theme that reverberates through our church and who we are as a people and that, that we realize that when we witness something ourselves, we cannot, we must not, ever stop testifying to what 
that is, what God is doing in our lives, how he is changing us. Uh, And so this final sermon, we'll get to talk about the Apostle Paul and what we can glean from him and how to do this witnessing well. So if you haven't been with us, let me give you uh, a recap. The first half of the book of Acts is mainly centered in Jerusalem where Jesus taught and ministered, dies, and, and died and rose from the dead. And the second half of the book of Acts is about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, um, he's got a crazy story. At the very beginning of the Jesus movement, he was persecuting Christians because he was a devout, passionate Jewish leader, and he was associated with this group known as the Pharisees that were known for following every letter of the Old Testament law, Uh, and he was a zealous uh, man. He persecuted Christians because he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He thought the way, the the Christians, as they became known, uh, was divergent from from the true way to know God, and so he would persecute. And, And as he was persecuting uh, Jews, he was actually traveling, or Christians, he was traveling in the countryside, and uh, he was on his way to arrest Christians and put them in prison, which is what he'd been doing. Um, and all of a sudden, as he was traveling to persecute Christians, along that way, the weight of the immeasurable glory of Christ confronted him, and a light shone around him, literally uh, to, to the effect that it knocked him off of of his horse, and he fell to the ground, and he heard Jesus Christ speaking to him, saying, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And he encounters the risen Jesus, just like all the other disciples and apostles had. He sees Jesus Christ alive, and the light was so powerful that it blinded him. He would later be healed by another Christian who then gave him the information that he needed to start following Jesus. And Paul became the Apostle Paul, St. Paul. We're studying him now because he changed the world because he himself was changed by witnessing the power and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ risen from the grave. And so we've looked at his three missionary journeys where he went all over the Mediterranean world, starting new churches, preaching the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Well, we see that he returned to Jerusalem and there he was arrested by devout Jews that were very much like him before he encountered the glory of Jesus Christ. And they arrest him, they call him a blasphemer. And then he gets transferred and imprisoned on a coast town called Caesarea for two years. He spent two years there uh, because he had called for a trial before Caesar, which is something you could do if you're a Roman citizen. You could appeal to Caesar. He thought he had been wrongly accused. He was wrongly accused, and so he appeals to Caesar, and he's waiting to be shipped to Rome. And that's where we pick up the story today, that he is about to head off into, uh, to Rome to appeal his trial before the highest court in the land. Uh, and along the way, we won't read this, but in chapter 27, of course, because this is the apostle's life, he's on his way. Uh, sailing back in the day wasn't quite so easy as it is today. Um, and he ends up shipwrecked on the island of Malta. God miraculously saves him along with all those that are with him. Eventually, they find new transport, they travel north, and they end up in the capital of the world, which is Rome. And that is where we pick up our story in chapter 28 in the book of Acts. Paul has made his way all the way to the capital city of the great empire of Rome. And this is, this is not nothing, that he's made it all the way to Rome. In fact, this is why I think Luke ends his narrative here, because um, the call of Jesus to the disciples was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, Rome wasn't the end of the earth, but it was the middle of the ends of the earth. So everything flows through Rome. And so that he takes the gospel to Rome, that a disciple of Jesus is now sitting in the capital of the empire. All roads lead to Rome, meaning all roads to everywhere else start in Rome. Now the gospel can go forward. And so this is why we end the book of Acts in Rome, because this commission um, 
has met uh, the end of phase one, which is now it is in the capital city of Rome. So, would you read with me? Uh, let's read verse 16 in chapter 28. And we're going to skip this middle part and read the end, and I'll come back to the middle section. So verse 16 says this. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now jump to verse 30. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So this is the final scene in the book of Acts. We do not have any more narrative to the Jesus movement than these last words, and it's, a, it's, it's amazing, a beautiful picture. The Apostle Paul sitting, guarded by a Roman official in a, in a probably tiny rented room, uh, probably chained to the kitchen table, sitting there for two years, 730 days at least probably, talking about Jesus without hindrance to whomever wanted to come and visit him. This is beautiful. This is Paul. I love that this is the final picture of him because it's so important that we remember this. Paul would hate that we're spending so much time talking about Paul. He wanted to talk about Jesus So we only talk about Paul to help us learn how to talk about Jesus. And what do we see Paul here? No matter what the circumstance, no matter where life takes him, no matter if he's in chains or he's a free man, Paul always interprets his situation not as disadvantage, but as advantage. Not as restriction, but opportunity. Not as unfortunate, but as God's providence. And so you could just see him giddy, thinking, I'm sitting in the capital of the world and I have a private guard protecting me from all the people that have been trying to kill me for the last 15 years and I get to sit here and talk to all these Roman officials and important people who want to talk to me about Jesus. My favorite thing to talk about. He is without hindrance. Do you see, do you see the beauty of this? Do you see what we can learn from Paul? Everything is opportunity to him. Everything is advantage. Everything is God's providence. God does not make mistakes. Wherever you find yourself, whenever you find yourself, wherever you find yourself, for whatever reason, for who knows how long, be confident that you are not there by accident. And God has you there for a purpose to accomplish his work in the world. The rest of Paul's story, we don't know from the book of Acts, but we know from extra-biblical sources. We know from the church fathers that would talk about Paul, and we have hints of this in his letters that he's written to churches that he's helped to start. Uh, But what we can glean is, is probably what happened is eventually Paul did get his trial in Rome. He got to share his case before the highest court in the land. He was acquitted. He was freed. And then he got to travel to Spain because he always, who doesn't want to go to Spain? He's always wanted to travel to Spain. He goes to Spain. He takes the gospel to Spain. And then he comes back to Rome and he's rearrested. And uh, we know that he was eventually beheaded for his refusal to recant his message about Jesus, his testimony. And he gave his life for the cause. Now, we aren't entirely sure why Luke doesn't tell us about the trip to Spain or the rearrest. Or We don't know that. I mean, there's a number of uh, possible reasons for that. Maybe. Luke had all the information that he had. Maybe Luke didn't know about the Spain trip or the rearrest. Or maybe Luke just said, this is the best place to end the book of Acts with Paul in the capital of Rome proclaiming Jesus. And we don't need to know the rest. That, That Luke's theological reasons for writing, Luke's the author of the book of Acts, his reasons were complete here. And to add uh, the other stuff was unnecessary. We're not entirely sure Um, but it doesn't really matter. This is the word of God, and so we trust we have everything we need to know. And I love, without hindrance, those are the last words in the book of Acts, that God has opened up a way for us now to take the baton from Paul to the ends of the earth. We are Acts 29, Acts 30, Acts 31, 32, 33. We are the church that flows out of the end of the book of Acts. And it is now without hindrance. It's amazing, uh, the work of God. 
through the Apostle Paul. So let's take a closer look now, starting at, at verse 17, at this very last encounter that Paul has in Rome, the very last encounter, and it looks a bit like other encounters. Look at verse 17. So after three days, so Paul gets to Rome, he waits just three days, and he says, let's get to work. He called, remember, he's been traveling on a ship for some time. His ship's been shipwrecked. He only waits three days to rest up. Conviction. I took three weeks of paternity. Okay. Okay. I'm not Paul. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. He called together the local leaders of the Jews. Now, this is interesting. If you've been with us, this is always Paul's pattern. Anytime he goes to a new city, he first meets with the Jews and then he goes to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So he does the same thing here. But it's not because there aren't Christians already in Rome. We know for a fact that there's already Christians living in Rome. We know in chapter 27, Paul's met there by some brothers and sisters in Christ, and they actually travel with him to Rome. So it's not that the gospel hasn't reached Rome. It's just Paul's never been to Rome. So he does his pattern, though. He first meets with the Jews. And when they had gathered, Paul said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, that's when the Romans had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, these are the Jews back in Jerusalem, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Okay? So he brings in the Jewish leaders in, in the synagogue of Rome, and he wants to explain to them what is going on uh, with his situation. And so he explains his arrest in Jerusalem. He asserts his innocence. He confirms that his innocence was confirmed by Roman officials, and then he explains why he had to appeal to Caesar because the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem wouldn't let it go. They wanted to kill him and assassinate him. Dave Jinn talked about that last week. They were going to kill him. So he appeals to Caesar, and then he says this, and you might not pick this up, but he explains the central charge that the Jews were making against Paul, and Paul accepts that and says, yes, I was preaching about the hope of Israel. He says, because of the hope of Israel, I am wearing these chains. The hope of Israel is Paul's way of explaining the resurrection. So the resurrection from the dead is the reason that the Jews arrested him. It's the reason they wanted to kill him because Paul was preaching the resurrection of the dead. And the reason he's preaching the resurrection of the dead is because Jesus himself was resurrected from the dead. And if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, then he's the first fruits of many, all of us who will experience resurrection from the dead. Read 1 Corinthians 15. This is always Paul's central message. And it's always the point of contention. Many people will, will be happy to tell you Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus died for his cause. Jesus is a great example of giving his life for his friends. But as soon as you start to say, but also he is the hope of all of us because he is the first to rise from the dead and we too will rise from the dead. Those of us who are connected to him will experience life eternal. Those of us who aren't will rise to life eternally separated from God. That is always the point of contention. And it was for Paul. So he says, basically, because I was preaching the resurrection and I'm not going to stop doing that. So verse 21, look what happens. And they said to him, well, we have re received no letters from Judea about you, from Jerusalem, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, Christianity was still seen as a sect of Judaism at this point, we know that everywhere uh, about this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against, meaning Jews everywhere don't like Christians. When they, verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That's from the Old Testament scriptures. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. 
but others disbelieved. This is always the pattern. We've seen it again and again. We wit- Paul has witnessed Jesus Christ risen from the grave. He witnesses and testifies to what he's seen, what he's experienced, how it had always been predicted in the Old Testament that Jesus must die and rise again. And some believe and others disbelieve. And others disbelieve. Now, what happens next is really what I want to spend the rest of today talking about. Paul's primary self-understanding of his own mission and his own purpose in, in this life, and we could say because Paul often says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, then I think it's safe to say that it's our primary mission and our primary purpose as followers and witnesses of Jesus ourselves. What we will see in the next section, verses 25 to 28, will help us to understand how we are, like Paul, to bring glory to Christ Jesus. I believe that's our primary mission and purpose as human beings, as followers and witnesses of Jesus. We teach the world how to glorify Christ. Okay, so now it's going to take a second to get there, so follow with me. Look at what happens. So, some have believed, some have disbelieved. Look at verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. This is his statement. Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Okay, what, what is he doing? What, why is the very last thing that Paul says in the book of Acts a quote from Isaiah chapter 6? On one level, it is obvious. He's condemning those people of God, those Jewish people who had been given the promise of, of God first he, he is condemning those who will not listen to God's messenger, who refuse to hear. But there's another level here that I think is really interesting and really powerful. And to understand it, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. You can either turn there with me or we will put it up on uh, the screen behind me, okay? So here we go. Isaiah chapter 6, which is where Paul is quoting from here. It's a really well-known passage, but I think to fully understand how Paul sees himself, we need to read the seven verses before Paul quotes Isaiah here, because I believe Paul sees himself as a new Isaiah, a new Isaiah. So here's what it says, Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah, the the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Okay? This is Isaiah speaking. He's saying, I saw the Lord, I saw God sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, a type of angel, each had six wings. Two of their wings covered their face, two of their wings covered their own feet, and two of their wings helped them to fly. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. And now we have the quote from Paul. You see that? Like Isaiah, Paul was granted an unfiltered glimpse at the full glory and radiance of God on that road to Damascus at his conversion, and it blinded him. I think this is why he speaks of his conversion story so often. If you just read through the book of Acts again and again, okay, we get your story, Paul. He always led with his story. Like Ben said, because his story was, I've seen the fullness of the glory of Christ. Like Isaiah, Paul, when he experiences Christ's majesty and holiness and light, realized that he was utterly unworthy to speak of what he had seen. Who am I? Paul would say. Paul was so hyper-aware of his uncleanness and his sinfulness. Let me just give you a few of the things Paul says in, in his letters. I think the first one we have is 1 Timothy. Do we have that up there? It says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy, and because I had acted ignorantly, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display so important, display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to, who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see that? Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners. I realized when I stood before the glory of Christ how truly unclean and unworthy I was to even speak his name. Look at another one. 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, last of all, to one untimely born, he, that's Jesus, appeared also to me, that's Paul, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. One more, one more. Ephesians 3, 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you the Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, the gift of that revelation on that road to Damascus, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, he's talking about all the Christians, I'm the very least, this grace was given so that I might preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Paul understood his smallness, that his lips were so unclean as to speak of these glories of Christ, these glories and brilliance of God. But like Isaiah, God sent a saint to Paul to heal him and restore him so that he might be sent out into the world with this new message predicated on what he had witnessed. God told him like he told Isaiah, go and speak of these glories that you have seen. And like Isaiah, Paul believed that his testimony had been touched by God 
so that his words were clean and his testimony about God was as good as God's testimony about himself. Okay, so you hear Paul in chapter 28 of Acts says this. He says, remember when the Holy Spirit talked to you? Well, who wrote that down? Isaiah. So Isaiah's words were the Holy Spirit's words. I believe Paul had the same self-awareness that he believed that God had made him a prophet and apostle so that Paul's words were the Holy Spirit's words because of what had happened on that day, what God had revealed to him, the special calling that had been put on Paul's life. Yet to this very day, we spoke about this when we started uh, the second half of Acts, to this very day, Christians and non-Christians alike will look at the words of Paul and they'll throw many of them out because his words often challenge us and they challenge the status quo. So Paul's first warning couldn't be more clear. God has sent out his word through the prophets and the apostles. Beware those who hear it but do not listen. Paul believed this about his own message, about his own testimony, about who God was. So here we have it, at the end of Paul's story, a profound insight into the work that Paul has been doing all along, that he believes his primary task is to glorify Christ with every breath that he has left in his body, and that's why he doesn't care when and how he does it, whether it's in prison, whether it's in house arrest, whether it's as a free man. Every breath is due to bringing glory to Christ. But now you should be asking yourself this question. If you're not, what in the world does bringing glory to Christ look like? What does that actually mean? We say it so often. Glorify Christ, glorify God, bring glory to God. What does that mean? What does that mean? I think this allusion to Isaiah 6 helps us understand what Paul would say bringing glory to Christ means and I think how we should think about it. You see, it's not as if Christ or the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, does not already possess the fullness of glory. God is glory. He possesses it all. We cannot give him something that he lacks. We cannot make Christ more holy, more radiant, more beautiful, more powerful, more forgiving, more compassionate. He is all in all. He already has glory. He possesses it. He lacks nothing. God cannot experience change. And so when we say glorify Christ, what we don't mean is that you can somehow change God, that he somehow needs something from you in order to become everything that he's meant to be. No, he is already the fullness of glory. So what it means to glorify Christ or to glorify God means that the realities of his being, character, and loving actions become as known as they are real, as known as they are real. So we are exposing that which has always been there. Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. It's all around us. And glorifying Christ means exposing that which is already there, unveiling a hidden mystery for all to know as clearly and specifically as possible. I mean, here's an illustration for you. I teased this out with my fellowship group. Here's, here's an illustration. Christmas season is coming, okay? And, and you're going to put some gifts under the tree if you can afford to buy a tree. Very expensive trees these days. <laughs> if you can't, you can still put the gifts out. The gift sits there. It's wrapped up. And there's coming a day in which you will unwrap the gift. But guess what? That gift is already there and given in its fullness. It is not changing when you unwrap it. It's there. But then when you unwrap it, it's exposed to you. It's revealed to you. Now what's crazy about this, and I can do this with analogies, so just stop me if you say, enough, Dave, enough. Just yell it out. Even before it's sitting under the tree, guess where that gift is? It's in the closet. And it's still as real sitting in the closet as it is sitting under the tree. But here's even the crazier thing. Even before it's sitting in the closet, 
It's sitting in the mind of your parents who love you so and are thinking about what you need and what they want to give you. Do you know that the work of Jesus Christ is that way? That before the foundations of the earth, God was thinking about you? That he was loving you? And that he knew exactly what you needed and he was planning to send his son into the world to die on a cross for your sin? And then he was going to bring him back to life so that you too might have new life. Now the gift came out of, of God and he sent his son. And the gospel's out there. And so, but so many, it's yet unwrapped. And to bring glory to God is to unveil that which he has already given. Now there's many gifts not just the gift of, of the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on our behalf. That is the greatest gift, the gift of salvation in Christ. It is the most important gift. Sadly, it is the gift that we often open and then put back in the closet once we're kind of bored of it. But there are many gifts. His glory is everywhere. The world is full of his glory. This is why Christianity has always been and should always be for science. Science is unveiling, unwrapping, exposing the glories of God in creation, the intricacy of his design, the majesty of his wonder. Every time we find a new galaxy, every time we get a telescope that goes further and further, we see how big God really is. So we should be for anything that unveils the glory of God. We don't worship it. We don't worship it, but we love it because it unveils the beauty and majesty of God and his design. I could go on and on with my analogy. I have a whole thing about stalking stuffers and this and that. I won't go there. <laughs> Let your imaginations run after the sermon's over. But focus in right here. Paul's task, see now, becomes clarified. God has revealed his glory to Paul in a special way, and Paul in turn has given his life to bring and give God glory through the reverberation of that revelation. He has the revelation and he reverberates it to the world. He doesn't hold on to it. He reverberates the revelation that God had given to him, making known to as, making known to as many as possible who will come and listen to him what has always been, what has always been the goodness, grace, and mercy of God, even though Paul himself took a while to see it. And Paul does this unveiling work, this exposing work, through what we can call the ministry of the ears. He says this, verse 28, I'm going to the Gentiles because they will listen. It's a ministry of the ears. You see, before the fall, it was a ministry of the eyes, meaning that Adam and Eve, before they chose to sin against God, could see God face to face. His glory was fully on display for them. They could look at him anytime they wanted, the ministry of the eyes. Then the fall happened, and God had to remove them from his presence. And we're in the in-between which is the ministry of the ears, which is we get to just hear about that glory. And God will give special revelation to special people for special purposes, like Paul, like Isaiah, so that they can take what they've seen, like Moses, take what they've seen and talk about the glories of God. But there is coming a day when we will all get to experience the ministry of the eyes again. And Christ will return in full glory and we'll get to see him face to face and we won't just get to hear of his glories, okay? Oh, that's going to be a glorious day. So this is the calling on each individual life to participate in the ministry of the ears. In fact, this reconciling work, this bringing the reality of God with the knownness of God into alignment, this is all of our work. So I want to help us do this better by giving us some helpful ways to bring glory to Christ. And, and to do that, I need to give you a paradigm shift. Um, we can think of glory maybe just like light, radiance. How do I explain that? How do I talk about that? Think about glory as value, okay? So in God is all glory located, but we could also say in God is all value located. So God is the most glorified when God is the most valued. 
So Paul, we see this in his writings, Philippians 3.17, throw that up here on the screen. Paul has got this thing where he had valued this thing as heavy. Then he experiences Christ, and the weight of God's glory so tips the scales that he counts everything, his studies, his rising up the ranks of Phariseeism, his power and his control in the society, he sees it all as nothing when compared to the weight of the glory of Christ. This is what Paul says. But whenever, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, also could translate that value, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. That's all his past Uh, accomplishments, all his past wealth and advantage that he had, I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So value, so think about when you say, I want to bring glory to Christ. Think, I want to bring value to Christ. I want to communicate the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is to a listening, watching world. And these are the seven marks of a faithful witness that will help you to show the true value of Christ. Number one, we repent. Turning away from those things that we have always said are of greatest value in our life to turning to Christ communicates the value of Christ. Do you see that? So so the sweetness of of pride and self-righteousness that Paul experienced as a Pharisee of Pharisees, as a Jew of Jews, as he talks about in Philippians, that value of that, that is a real value And that he turns and gives all that up to to take hold of Christ, to cling to Christ. You see how that communicates to a world watching? Wow, you must think much of this Jesus. When we really know and articulate, we have to articulate this. This is is because we value different things. When we articulate the value of our old way of life, what we gave up to follow Jesus, we are glorifying him. We are valuing him for a world that is so struggling to know what his value is. So pleasure, security, the pride that is felt when when you are excelling in self-righteous morality, just like Paul, or whatever the pleasure of sex or money or drugs, or alcohol, whatever it is that is of great value to you, when you give that up to cling to Christ, you're communicating extreme value of knowing Jesus Christ, and that is bringing him glory. The opposite is true, though. If you do not fight to give up these things, and you just try to hold them both, guess what you're doing? You're equating the value of Christ with the value of these old ways. And, and how do you expect the world to know the true glory and value of Christ if you hold them like this? Number two, we celebrate the fruits of a repentant life, the fruits of life with God. That should be celebrated. We should celebrate so much when we see God turning people from their old way to new ways of life, when we see people obeying God, when we see people growing in God, uh, when we try an acai bowl for the first time ever. I never knew they existed. They've always existed in Hawaii, and now they exist on the mainland. Is Preston here? (laughs) Oh, Preston, you're going to get it. Preston loves acai bowls. Okay. Enjoy God. Enjoy Christ. Enjoy salvation. We communicate value onto the things that we celebrate. So do you celebrate the fruits of life with God as much as you celebrate a fourth quarter touchdown? Related, number three, we sing. Remember Paul in prison singing, singing as he's in prison to the glories of God. Have you ever looked down the line at church and seen somebody singing in such a way you say, they really value Christ. I have. It has nothing to do with your voice talent. It has everything to do with the authenticity and sincerity with which you sing of the glories of God. I mean, think about every college male that's ever existed learning to play guitar just so he could sing that one Enrique Iglesias song to the girl that he loved and the passion with which he sang it. 
Man, he valued that, that relationship. Speaking just generally, I don't know. Personally, maybe. Number four, we long for Christ. So Paul longed to be with Christ. He says, to die is gain. I get to be with Christ. Paul longed to talk about Christ. When we long for something with giddy anticipation, we communicate so much value onto that thing. Do you get excited to worship Jesus? Do you get excited and giddy about talking with others concerning him? Do you get as excited, do you long as much for time with Christ and to talk about him as you do the next movie that you're excited to see or the next concert you're excited to attend or the next vacation? You see, that which you long for, you glorify because you are placing great value upon it. Do you long for Christ's return like Ryan talked about? Do you long to see him in his full glory? Do you wait with anticipation? I've been teaching Grace in this uh, little saying, wait, wait, celebrate. I'm teaching my son that delayed gratification actually communicates value upon that which you wait. We wait upon Christ's return, and the more we wait and anticipate, the more value we put on him, that we're willing to give up things in this life to wait upon and celebrate his coming, that communicates great value. That brings glory to Christ Jesus. Number five, we cherish God's word because we think that these are letters from Jesus, like letters received by a lover in wartime. We believe that Jesus has sent us these. Do we cherish this word? For 1,900 years, Christians, physical Bible was their most prized possession. But now we can get it so easily. Have we lost the value of God's Word. If somebody saw us interact with this Word, would they think that we loved and cherished the author? Number six, we do what this Word tells us to do. If God asks me to do something and I don't do it, do I really value that relationship? Do I really value His authority in my life? That which I obey, I value. Maybe especially when I don't fully understand why he's asked me to do it. Number seven, we speak of his grand work in our lives and in our world. We proclaim the gospel because when we talk about things, we value them. I value my children, therefore I talk about them a lot. What do you speak of most often? Now, I've purposely kept number seven till the last because I think so often we think about to glorify God means that I always have to be talking about him all the time. Now that's where we want to get to, but there's six steps you can do before you get to that place. So don't think, oh, I'm just not good about talk, sharing the gospel with others. I'm not good about talking about Christ's work. You, you can do all those other and you're bringing glory to Jesus Christ, your Savior. They, 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 I've put them in an ascending order of difficulty. Everybody that is a Christian has repented and turned from the old way of life to a new. Default. Everybody can sing. You don't have to be good at it. Everybody, well, I think number two was celebrate. Everybody can celebrate what God's doing. Just learn to clap. It's so easy. I try to get claps started here at church all the time. Nobody follows. Just, it's just like this. Ah! Okay. So easy. Celebrate. Okay, so ascending order. And so you don't, see, you don't need a stage, you don't need a book deal, you don't need a podcast to glorify Christ and to communicate his surpassing worth in your life to a watching and listening world, okay? This is what Paul teaches us. This is what we need to do. We need to uncover the glory and value of Jesus Christ for a world who has gotten him wrong, who has greatly undervalued him. We need them to buy stock in the Lord Jesus Christ that when he returns, they might be saved and that now they might experience life to the full. And if this is hard for you, if you feel like, man, I struggle with this. I struggle getting giddy about talking about Jesus, singing to Jesus. You want to know why? It's this simple. There's something blocking your view 
of him. His glory is there. Something's blocking your view. And that something is called sin. There's something in your life that is functioning as sin because it is blocking your view of the glory of Jesus Christ because the earth is full of it and yet we can't see it. Otherwise, singing would be so easy. Celebrating would be so easy. Sharing the gospel would be so easy, but we don't see it. So we have to look deeply at our own life and ask the question, what is blocking my view of Jesus? So keep looking. Keep considering. Keep getting things out of the way, just as Paul did, so that you might see the glories of Jesus Christ and communicate that value to the world who needs to know. And it's going to feel like you're trudging through the wilderness, through the woods, and there's branches everywhere, but one day, I promise, a clearing is coming, and you too will see the glories of Christ on full display in a way that you never have before, and you will never regret following Him with your whole life. Let's pray. Father God, we are terrible at this. One day we will know in a way that Paul knew how big you are, how majestic you are, how loving you are. Help us to move things out of our life that get in our way. Help us to put to death those sins that keep us from seeing you and knowing you and experiencing you as fully as we can in this in-between before you return in the fullness of glory. God, help us to sing with reckless abandonment now as we proclaim the glories of Christ Jesus, our Savior, who died on the cross and who rose again. Clear that out. Help us to see fully. And help us to communicate that to a world who desperately undervalues you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.